WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Tom Brady, after the play fake, deep pass, man running open, Chris Hogan off to the races, touchdown New England. Hello again, everybody, welcome to City Talk. And when you talk local sports in Boston, you think of names like Bob Wilson, Gil Santos, Ned Martin, Ken Coleman, Joe Castiglione. And when you think national, you think of people like Dick Enberg, Keith Jackson, Al Michaels, Bob Costas, and the gentleman that is with us now that fits all categories, local and national, the one and only voice of ABC and ESPN Sports, Sean McDonough. And Sean, I, I can't tell you what a great thrill it is for me to be able to sit here and talk to a guy that I've been listening to for many, many years. Well, I would say the same thing back to you. I have been listening <laughs> to you for a long time as well and appreciate our friendship. It was great to run into you a couple of weeks ago, and I'm glad this worked out to be with you today. You are a gentleman who grew up in the world of sports as I did, mainly because of my dad's interest, but your dad was in it. It must have been a real kick for you to be able to look back on growing up and being in Boston with your dad. Yeah, no question. It was the greatest blessing of my life, really, is to be my father's son. You know, he remains my idol and really mentor. I still think back on the life lessons that I learned from him, even though he's been gone for almost 20 years now, which is hard to believe. And in some ways, it's not hard to believe because we miss him so much every day. But, you know, just being around him as a kid, getting to go to games, developing a love of sports, you know, having a chance to go to spring training down in Winter Haven, watching some of those legendary broadcasters that you mentioned, people like Ken Coleman and Ned Martin, uh, do their thing and realizing, boy, that would probably be a fun thing to do when that gets to be my time in life. So I knew when I was five or six years old that this is what I wanted to do for a living, really just from following my dad around. Tell me about, um, I remember when you you and your dad, which is very unusual, I guess, especially today, you guys did a talk show and I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, I know you have a great connection to WBZ radio and you know, back in the day, this is a long time ago now, all right, I still have a, a picture here in my office of the two of us uh, doing it's a WBZ promotional poster that was uh, promoting the fact that we were going to do our show from uh, Foxwoods, which was in its early days back then and was one of our sponsors. But the yeah, that was a real treat. They had WBZ had Monday Night Football. So Ed Goldman, who, you know, was the you know running both uh, WBZ radio and TV back then. He said, how would you guys like to do a talk show together on Monday nights before Monday Night Football leading into the broadcast of Monday Night Football? So we jumped on the opportunity to do that together. It was a lot of fun. It was great for the listeners because, you know, my dad, as you know, was so plugged in to the NFL that you know, he had all of the breaking news on the Monday, stuff that had happened the day before, players who had gotten hurt or whatever it might be, coaches who might be on the hot seat. And then he had a lot of good information about the two teams uh, who are going to be playing in that Monday night football game right after us. So uh, that was a real treat to be able to do a show with my dad. Now, we all know that you went to Syracuse University. Now, I'm wondering, because of the great school that BU had, um, why Syracuse? Was it because of 
people like Marv Albert and Bob Costas that had previously gone there? Or was there another lure that got you to go up there? No, that was the biggest reason. You know, Syrac BU's great and it had a great communications program back then as well. It still does. You know, Emerson here in town is also excellent. Boston College has turned out some top play-by-play guys who are in my era, a little bit younger, but Bob Washusen and Joe Tessator, among others. John Shambi does a great job on the National Baseball and on the Chicago Cubs game. So, you know, there were some good local choices. I, I know you heard me say this at the speech uh, that I gave a couple of weeks ago at the luncheon we attended together, and that is I wanted to go to Notre Dame. You know, growing up Irish Catholic from South Boston, you know, just always loved Notre Dame, wanted to go there, uh, visited there, fell in love with it even more. Went out to see a Notre Dame football game, actually, with my dad. It was part of an amazing weekend that I'll never forget. We also went to a Chicago Bear game, and we went to a Monday night football game in Green Bay. They were playing the Patriots. This was back in the fall of 1980, I guess it would have been, or 79, my senior in high school, 79. So anyway, uh, long story longer, uh, Notre Dame did not admit me. Uh, they said if I went to Syracuse, which they considered a peer college and did well, that they would take me as a transfer. So I went to Syracuse really knowing in my mind that it was the right place for me to be and just fell in love with it immediately and uh, wrote a letter after my first semester when I did well, thanking Notre Dame, but saying that, you know, I'm in the right place for me. So God has a plan for all of our lives and going to Syracuse had turned out to be one of the most important things that ever happened to me. Now, I grew up in Rochester, New York, which is, of course, near Syracuse, and had the pleasure of not meeting, but knowing, because of listening to broadcasts, of various ballplayers that made it to the majors. My dad met Stan Musial, as a matter of fact, when he was on his way up to St. Louis, went to ball games when guys like Bob Gibson, um, um, Tim McCarver, Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Palmer, Wally Bunker, uh, and others were around in the area. You broadcast four years for Syracuse. What to you were some of the athletes that, that played there that made a big connection to the majors? Oh, wow. Uh, quite a few of them. You know, minor league baseball, as you know, is great. It was a very, very valuable experience, you know, to do basically 400 or so minor league baseball games at the highest level of the minors. I did the Syracuse Chiefs games. Uh, Now they're the Syracuse Mets, but for most of their history, they were the Syracuse Chiefs. And, you know, to to be one level below the major leagues when 19, 20, 21 years old, it was invaluable experience and, and a lot of fun. You know, Rochester, you know, as you know, you just mentioned some of their baseball history. It's a great sports town you know they really supported the minor league baseball team the ahl hockey team which they still have you know is considered one of the best uh, franchises in in the ahl so uh, you know it was uh, to answer your question when i was doing the syracuse games they were the top farm team for the toronto blue jays and we had fred mcgriff was our first baseman i think he should be in the major league baseball hall of fame tony fernandez was the shortstop he was a great shortstop you know, the pitchers tended to go through very quickly. Kelly Gruber was our third baseman. He was on the Blue Jays in 92 and 93, I think, when uh, when they won the World Series. And that was really part of the treat for me because, you know, 10 years later, basically, after I did the minor league baseball, I was doing the World Series for CBS with Tim McCarver, who you just mentioned. And the Toronto Blue Jays happened to be in it both years that I did the World Series in 92 and 93. So I knew a lot of the people, not just on the team, 
but you know, the coaches, the trainers, the people in the organization, as they would say in Toronto. So, uh, you know, it was kind of neat for me to, uh, be the voice of the World Series when these people that I know very well won back-to-back World Series. Yeah, I'm sure the name Gary Carter will be forever stamped in your memory. Yeah, Joe Carter. Joe yeah. Carter, yeah, yeah. yeah that's Joe right. was Gary Carter. <laughs> Gary Carter was a great player and a nice guy. Remember, he was nice enough to come up a couple times and play in my charity golf tournament uh, that we started in memory of my dad that we uh, continue to have to this day. So Gary Carter was great, and Joe Carter hit the – course the famous home run in 1993 to end the world series in game six it was only the second time that the world series at the major league level had ever ended on a home run bill Mazeroski was the other one so you know to have the chance to do the world series only twice because cbs lost the broadcast rights after 93 but to have one of the two years be the joe carter year and then the previous year the national league championship series went to game seven between atlanta and uh Pittsburgh. It was one of the great games of all time. Pittsburgh was ahead two to nothing going to the bottom of the ninth and Atlanta scored three runs um, with Sid Bream scoring the winning run just barely ahead of the tag uh, with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. So that was one of the great games in baseball history. So to have it for only two years, but to have it be those two years was pretty special in a lot of ways. Now, your first year with the Boston Red Sox, I think, is 1988. And if it was, you got involved in something called Morgan Magic. Right. Yeah, that's correct. It was my first year. Uh, it didn't start particularly well. Um, you know, they, uh, but they, you know, they rallied in an almost miraculous way. It, it was magical. And I was very happy for Joe, you know, being a local guy uh, from Walpole, as we all know, uh, you know, just a baseball lifer. Matter of fact, when I was doing the minor league games a couple of those years, he was uh, in Pawtucket, at least one of them. You know, he had been down there for a long time as a manager. You know, managed a lot of games without making a lot of money, getting a lot of attention, helped develop some of the Red Sox players on their way through. So, you know, to see a really, really good person like Joe get that opportunity and take advantage of it was really a treat. Dan Berkeley. Yes. Tell me, tell me about him. Dan Berkeley is one of my favorite people that I've ever met. Um, one of the most important people in my life, you know, really like a older brother or second dad to me. Um, he was the general manager at channel 38 president general manager back in the heyday of the old WSBK TV 38. You know, every now and then I would fill in on ask the manager, his show with as the viewer advocate and read the viewer mail to him. Dana Hersey usually had that job, but every now and then they let me do it. And, um, uh, he was the one who gave me the opportunity when I was 25 years old to start doing the Red Sox games on Channel 38 when, I, you know, in 1988. So, you know, if he had not given me that opportunity, I don't know if a lot of those other things that you mentioned in your very kind introduction would have happened, you know, because I got the opportunity at ESPN because the executives at ESPN lived in Connecticut, got Channel 38 on cable. You know, they would watch me on TV, and apparently they came to the conclusion that I was somebody that they wanted to bring in ESPN. Then the CBS people saw me on ESPN. So, you know, it all traces back to actually to the minor league baseball because that was the huge head start, having 400 minor league games by the time I was 22 years old. But, you know, Dan giving me that chance when I was 25 is, is really uh, the biggest break I ever got in my life, and I am forever indebted to him for his belief in me 
uh, I hope I rewarded it with uh, a performance that he was proud of. And, you know, as you know, he was at the luncheon uh, that we were together with not long ago. And, um, you know, he remains a really, really, really dear close friend and mentor and somebody whose uh, friendship I will cherish forever. Now, you left the Red Sox and then came back again. Was that because of ESPN and CBS? Uh, partially, but, you know, it was mostly. I'd been doing the TV for, I guess it was 17 years. You know, when I started out back in the Channel 38 days, the games were pretty much split evenly between the over-the-air TV in that time, Channel 38, and Nesson. And then as those years, the 17 years went along, more and more of the games went to Nesson. Fewer and fewer were on the, quote-unquote, over-the-air TV. So, you know, toward the end, I think I was only doing Friday nights. It was something like 28 games. So, you know, I think uh, the biggest reason was, you know, that they had just won the World Series with what was then a new ownership group. I think they felt like I made too much money for what I was doing. Um, You know, I had the opportunity to go to ESPN full time. They wanted me to come there and do more. And a lot of the things that I was going to do were really intriguing to me. You know, if I had not left the Red Sox, I wouldn't have done the British Open golf, for example, at St. Andrews and some other places, which was an experience that I cherish. So, you know, I, I b- believe I said it before, God has a plan for our lives. And if you trust in it, uh, it usually works out uh, the way uh, that you hoped it would. And in my case, uh, you know, I was sad to leave the Red Sox. It really wasn't my choice, but the opportunity to come back four years ago when WEI invited me to come back and do some games with the Red Sox blessing on their radio network has been awesome because it's been great to be reconnected to the Red Sox. I love doing baseball on the radio, which I've not really had much of a chance to do since way back in those minor league days. What's that? 40 years ago now, almost. <laughs> so, and the chance to work with, uh, as you described them, a legend in, in Joe Castiglione and with Will Fleming, uh, has really been a joy. You know, Joe's been a friend uh, since the 1980s when I started out with the Red Sox. And as you know, he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And Will is as well. So it's been a lot of fun these last four years to kind of jump back in with the Red Sox and work with those guys. You, know, you mentioned minor league baseball. A story that I will always remember and never forget was that when Boob Powell came through Rochester, the, the Red Wing announcer, whom I worshipped growing up, kept saying that the Orioles shouldn't let him come up. He should stay down in the minor leagues for one more season. The Orioles took him up, and he was Rookie of the Year. Yeah, it just goes to show you the announcers don't always know what's best. (laughs) (laughs) We like to think that we do, uh, and it's fine to offer your opinion. But I can understand the uh, minor league announcer wanting to tell. You know, I'm sure he was sincere. I'm sure he thought Boog probably could have benefited from more time in the minors. There have been plenty of guys who probably went through minor league baseball too quickly and it actually harmed them. And, you know, even today, obviously, uh, professional baseball organizations are trying to make that balance all the time. When's the right time to call up their prospects? But, you know, as the minor league baseball announcer, you want the minor league team to be good too. It's a lot more fun when they're winning. So he probably had a little bit of a rooting interest in Boog sticking around to help Rochester win. The first athlete I ever met in my life was Joe Pepitone, yeah. former first baseman of the Yankees. Do you remember the first athlete you met in sports? Oh, wow. I really don't. You know, it's uh, 
And I met a lot of them and I met a lot of them at an early age. You know, obviously going to spring training when I was five years old, however old we were, you know, we were around a lot of the Red Sox all the time. You know, I remember meeting Yaz and Tony Canigliaro when I was very young. You know, I idolized Bobby Orr. I don't remember the first time I met him, but, uh, you know, I grew up in the 60s and early 70s when, you know, Bobby Orr was the man uh, here in town. And, uh, you know, it was just so nice to meet him later and realize that, you know, he was such a good guy, such a nice person, in addition to being a great hockey player. Um, you know, one of the things that was fun, Ken, about growing up in our house was just every time you answered the phone, you never knew who it was going to be. You know, we were well uh, taught by our parents to be polite when answering the phone. And someone would ask my dad, and I'd say, who's calling, please? And, you know, it was always, uh, it's Pete Rosell, it's Red Auerbach, <laughs> it's Jim Plunkett, it's uh, whoever, Bill Parcells, Al Davis, Johnny Unitas. I remember one time my dad, we were raking leaves and my dad said, I'm expecting a call from Johnny Unitas. So uh, if the phone rings, you run in and answer, but make sure you're very polite on the phone. And sure enough, it was Johnny Unitas. So, uh, you know, that was, you know, I don't know if that qualifies as meeting them, but I did speak to an awful lot of the uh, biggest names in sports uh, during my youth. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. When I was a BC uh, of course, we had calling all sports and, you know, working with Guy Manila and then later on with Bob Bell and Upton Bell. You never know who you were going to meet. I can still remember walking Seth Sanders down the hall to the studio to do an interview. And I never walked with anybody who was so tall and I felt <laughs> so small. <laughs> yeah, so yeah the basketball exactly players are even bigger now. I mean, and the other thing that's amazing to me doing these football games, especially when you get around the offensive linemen. You know, that we did a game the other day. The offensive lineman, one of the offensive linemen was 6'7 and 360 pounds, and he had actually lost some weight. So wow. uh, these are guys who block out the sun. But, <laughs> yeah, it's always a treat. You know, it's, it's still special to me, um, even now at 60 years old and not six years old, to, uh, you know, meet some of these uh, sports people who are – you know, well-known, especially when they're nice people. You know, it's it's not really that big a deal when you meet somebody who isn't particularly nice. But when you meet somebody who's uh, so accomplished in the sports world, they turn out to be nice people as well. That's really a treat. Are athletes as accessible now as they were earlier in your career? I don't think so. You know, I, I even know my dad's been gone 20 years ago, and we talked about that. You know, I think that's one of the things, Ken, that the money has changed. You know, my dad used to talk about you know, when he covered the Red Sox in the 60s, you know, the, the guys weren't making that much money. And if you wrote something, you know, you wrote Dick Raditz is a funny guy, a great storyteller, whatever. And he wound up making a couple hundred bucks to go speak to some, you know, Kiwanis Club or Knights of Columbus or a business group or something. It was meaningful uh, to them. You know, nowadays they don't really obviously need the money and they probably don't feel like they really need much from the media. And I just think, you know, the media has changed so much. There's so many more people, you know, social media has changed the whole way that uh, the sports world works and that news is broken. So I don't think there's that same connection. You know, my dad was friendly. Some people criticized him for, but he was friendly with a lot of the people that he covered. You don't really see that much anymore. It's much more of kind of a, a business relationship than it is a personal friendship in most cases. I'm curious, Sean, what is the hardest sport 
for you to prepare for when, when you're going to do a broadcast? Um, it's another great question. I, I think the most time uh, intensive is football, just because of the numbers of people who are going to play. Well, he has trouble with the snap, and the ball is free. It's picked up by Michigan State. Jalen wants Jackson, and he scores on the last play of the game. Unbelievable. You know, when I get ready for a college football game, there might be 80 or 85, 90 guys dressed on each team. Now, they're not all going to get in the game, but, you know, a team like Clemson, who I have this coming week, you know, they usually lead the nation year in and year out in the number of players who play per game. And the number is usually in the 70s somewhere. So, you know, that's a lot of guys to be prepared for. Um, the strategy of football can be a little more complex than some of the other sports. So we try to prepare for that when we meet with the coaches and players before the game. So I would say in terms of preparation football, because uh, because of the numbers of, of people, you know, in a basketball game that you do, there might be nine or 10 players, you know, if it's a, if it's a, big number would be 11 or 12 we might play for each team and it usually doesn't get to that and uh you know hockey you know exactly who's going to play you know there there's 20 guys dressed for an nhl game so um yeah football would be the hardest i would venture to guess just off the top of my head that the only sport you have not done is boxing am mm -hmm. i correct there well, yeah, of the major ones, you know, I've, I've called 11 sports on national TV. Boxing is not one of them. Um, as a matter of fact, I think I've only been to one prize fight in my life, and it was when I was in high school or college. I was interning at the old Boston Garden, and Marvin Hagler fought v Vito Antifermo in the oh, uh, yeah. in the old garden, and. Uh, because I was sort of like the intern with the press corps, I was, you know, hanging around by the ring where the press was and just the sound of it, you know, on TV, the gloves hitting each other, it just kind of sounds like touche, 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 you know, but yep. when you're there, it's more like the crack of somebody hitting bone. And Vito Antifermo was a legendary bleeder and his blood was just flying all over the place. And uh, I remember that too. So uh, I have not called boxing. Uh, boxing isn't quite what it used to be, but uh, no, that is one of the ones that uh, I have not yet called. The other one that I don't know that I could do, you know, people ask me all the time, how do you do all these sports? And, you know, I basically say it's the same thing. You know, if you understand the way the games are played and you understand the rules and you prepare for it, you should be able to do it. It's the same skill. I mean, you're describing it and you're supplementing the action with information, whether it's stats or biographical stories about the participants, whatever it may be, but you have to understand it. You know, auto racing is, is one of those things that I don't know if I could actually do, because I don't really think I, I know enough about it. But, uh, but most of the, you know, the other stuff I've done, I've always felt comfortable. You know, there's some great stuff on YouTube. Speaking of boxing, I've never been to an actual prize fight, but I used to love boxing on radio. And there are a couple of great, there's one great uh, match on YouTube with the first match between Engamar Johansson and Floyd Patterson with Les Kiter and oh, yeah. Howard Cosell. And mm -hmm. that stuff is just great to listen to. If you're ever looking for something to, to do yeah, in a spare know, time. You say that, I'll try to find that because Les Kiter is one of those legendary broadcasters who I've heard a lot about and read stuff about. I've actually met uh, some of his offspring 
but um, uh, I never actually, I don't think I've ever heard or seen anything that he, he called. Obviously, uh, boxing had a lot to do with Howard Cosell's career. And, you know, those are some great broadcasts. I think Don Dunphy was the other famous oh, uh, yes. Yes. broadcaster. And I actually worked with his son, who was a director at ESPN for a while. So, yeah, those broadcasters back then uh, were great. You know, I love when I listen to an old-time broadcast because I think in some ways they are they were better than what we, uh, those of us who are, who do it today. <laughs> there are so many drop-ins during ball baseball games now. It's kind of sad. I mean, <laughs> well, it's going to be interesting to see, Ken, going forward, because with the pitch clock, um, you know, I don't know when there's going to be time. If there really is going to be a pitch every 15 or 20 seconds, it's it's going to be hard to get. You're going to have to do the drop-ins, you know, obviously between batters, and they're going to try to keep them moving toward the plate. You know, some of these games are so slow. As a broadcaster, you're kind of happy to have the drop-ins because it gives you something to say. You almost <laughs> run out of things to talk about when some of these games are four hours long and, you know, it's just the pitcher walking around uh, not doing anything, but, you know, just kind of standing around the mound waiting a long time to throw the next pitch. But there are a lot of drop-ins, but, uh, you know, as somebody who makes a living doing this and gets paid because they sell ads, uh, I'm never going to complain about the volume of the ads because at the end of the day, uh, if they weren't there, uh, the announcers and a lot of other people who work for these broadcast entities would not be compensated, which would not be a good thing for those of us who do this. Let's talk about some local sports, if you don't mind, and some local issues. I think first and foremost on everybody's mind is what's going to happen with the Red Sox. Um, I've heard Tony Maserati say that this is the most critical offseason time that the Red Sox have ever had in their history. Well, I think it's really important. I'm not always great at the historical significance of it because obviously there are a lot of post-seasons, uh, off-seasons that took place before I was even around. So, but, uh, but it is critically important. You know, I think they have a lot of work to do. I think they need to figure out what they want to be, you know, in terms of, you know, they, they spent a lot of money. You know, it's not that they didn't spend money on the payroll. They spent it. They just obviously didn't spend it particularly well. I mean, to get over the uh, luxury tax threshold or whatever they call it and have a, a last place team uh, would uh, suggest, I think, quite obviously that they didn't spend the money well. So I think it's important that they continue to spend the money. I mean, if you want to be a competitor, that's the reality of it. And uh, but you need to spend it on the right people. So I think they need to figure out what to do with Xander Bogart's endeavors. Uh, you know, those are important uh, issues uh, on the front of their plate. But then I also think they need to figure out how they're going to make uh, the team better because they they need to fix the bullpen. You know, I think they believe they've addressed the first base situation uh, with the moves they made with bringing Eric Hosmer over. And then uh, when Tristan Casas came up, I thought he was a bright spot, even though he didn't hit for a high average. You could kind of see enough to make you think that he's going to be a very good major league player. But, um, you know, uh, right field is still an issue. You know, they lost – everything that Hunter Renfro gave them and really didn't replace that at all. So, you know, my heart still aches about Mookie Betts. I think when you look back on it, that was just a a horrible development really in the history of the franchise and especially in the modern day. And it was a a big mistake that they couldn't make that work somehow. Well, I think another one, and, and, and these things fans remember, but besides Betts, I'm also thinking of John Lester. Right. Yep. 
uh, that was obviously a guy who went on to have uh, several more good years after he left. I know that was a really tough decision. You know, I think the scuttlebutt about Mookie was that, well, no matter what we offered, he wasn't going to stay. And then he has said recently, from what I'm told, that, you know, had the Red Sox offered him basically what the Dodgers did, he, he would have stayed. So I think it's unfortunate because, you know, it's not just about it's mostly about trying to have the best team you can have. And obviously, when you have one of the best players in Major League Baseball, that gives you a leg up on trying to have one of the best teams in baseball. Doesn't guarantee it. I mean, as we've seen, Mike Trout might be the best player in baseball over the last decade, and he hasn't done anything in the postseason. He hasn't <laughs> you know, had the chance. Uh, and he has Shohei Otani on his team, too, uh, who would also be in the conversation. So you have to have a good team around those guys, but it's a big head start when you have those guys. And then, you know, Mookie, a lot of it's about entertaining your fans. And he was just such a pleasure, you know, as a fan to see what he could do every night, you know, uh, in the field, at the plate, on the bases. And he was a great guy. You know, he's the kind of person you want to have as the face of your franchise. So, you know, I I think that was uh, really a bad chapter in Red Sox history. And unfortunately, there's really no way to fix it because he's not coming back. I, I know you do a lot of television, um, but I'm curious, do you enjoy radio more? I mean, uh, a quote from Ernie Harwell once was, "It on radio, it doesn't happen until I say it does. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's why a lot of broadcasters do enjoy radio more. I'm going to give a really lousy, evasive answer and say um, that I do enjoy both of them. I, I, I think they're a lot different. You know, the radio announcers like to say, well, radio is harder because you have to describe everything. You have to paint the pictures. You know, that's always the phrase that they use. And that's true. I mean, you, you do have to be more descriptive. You do have to try to paint pictures. The, but the flip side of that is what Ernie said in that quote. And I think if he's not the greatest announcer, baseball announcer of all time, he's in the top three that I've ever heard. But the, you know, the, the, the flip side is you do, as Ernie said, say it when you want to say it, you know, you say whatever you want to say in the order in which you want to say it. Whereas on TV, we're beholden to the pictures, you know, we we're supposed to basically be putting captions on pictures. So we might want to be talking about the left fielder, but if the audience is looking at the third baseman, we need to be talking about the third baseman. Now there are ways you can be in sync, excuse me, with the producer and director about that. We have talk back buttons on our headset where it basically mutes our microphone so it doesn't go over the air and then it's an intercom into the tv truck and we can say hey you know after this pitch i'd really like to tell a story about the third base coach or whatever so they take a shot of the third base coach so that you know the words are matching what the people are seeing on the screen but uh they're different i think they're both fun in their own way Uh, but it is a huge reason why I welcome the opportunity to go do some red sox baseball when they invited me uh, four seasons ago because it's fun more than anything else. It really is fun. Is television too controlling as far in as uh, of, in terms of, uh, you know, late night broadcast, the World Series game starting at quarter or nine at night? Right. Um, um, uh, yeah, the best example of how it's still doing well, I think, is with the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is on at a real decent time. Everybody can watch it. They can have a bowl of potato chips and clam dip and sit there and enjoy the game. Right. Baseball is not, it's not that way anymore. 
And when I grew up, and I know you did too, at the, we were different in age, but there was afternoon baseball, World Series. You used to get right. let out of school to hear, and you didn't have to try and stay up till midnight. Right. Well, you know, I think it's a dilemma, you know, because, and I agree with what you're getting at. You know, the, the problem is, yeah, I mean, the, the Major League Baseball, maybe the World Series games start here at 9 o'clock, but that's only 6 o'clock. On the West Coast, you still have people who are, you know, getting home from work or school or whatever the case may be. So, you know, you're, you're trying to find the right balance of serving, you know, all of the viewers. But uh, but it is late, especially with the slow as some of these games are. And uh, in some ways, they're even slower in the postseason. I think the commercial breaks are a little longer, although the thing that, you know, makes the games long is the pace at which it's played. So. I'm really, really excited about the pitch clock, and I think it's going to make a big difference and hopefully help uh, make the game more popular. I, I think it will. It certainly won't make it less popular. So, um, yeah, I mean, TV does control the a lot of the starting times of these things, but you know they're they're trying to put it on when the most people are going to watch it, right? So, uh, yeah. It, it, so by that standard, they, you actually are serving the viewer, I think, if you're trying to figure out when you're maximizing the audience and most people can watch it. I'm a traditionalist. When I say that, I go back to before interleague play. And it was really interesting in all-star games to see a Warren Spawn face a Mickey Mantle. You don't have that anymore because of free agency. Uh there's more interleague play that's going to start next year than there ever was before. I don't like that. How do you like the schedule? Well, I agree with you. You know, I understand why they did interleague play. You know, obviously they studied it a lot and felt like that's what their fans wanted. And, but I, I agree, you know, I was a kid, the all-star game, you know, you, it was can't miss TV. I mean, you had to watch it and the players really cared about it and they wanted to, beat each other. And I don't think there's any more example than that than, you know, Pete Rose running over Ray Fossey at home plate uh, in an all-star game. I mean, that would never happen today. You know, part of it was Pete might've been a little overzealous at a lot of what he did. That's the way he played all the time. But, and I think the world series was more special uh, when it was the American league against the national league and you didn't have the interleague play. So, um, but I understand the argument. I mean, people, there are a lot of great players in the national league and, People like to watch them play in person. So if you're a Red Sox fan here, you get a chance to see some of the best players in the National League uh, in person. So I understand the argument on both sides, but I'm with you. I'm a, I'm a traditionalist. I kind of like the way it was back in the old days. I feel I, I, I don't like 10 or 11 year contracts. I don't think the ball players are as motivated as they were in the days of Mantle and Williams and DiMaggio. Yeah, I, I understand that. You know, um, I think that's why some teams are reluctant to hand them out. You know, we, we've seen, you know, some of the, the big deals in baseball that got handed out. The, the players certainly didn't perform to the level at which they were getting paid uh, at the end of the contract, sometimes even in the middle of it. So, yeah, I, I understand that. But, you know, it goes back to what we we're talking about with a guy like Mookie Betts. You know, if you want to have Mookie Betts, if you want to keep Mookie Betts or you want to acquire him, uh, you know, that's probably the kind of deal that it's going to take to make that happen. You know, we saw that this year with uh, what Juan Soto was asking for. And, you know, we're going to have uh, Aaron Judge be a free agent here, Shohei Otani soon. Um, 
it'll be really interesting to see what they command, but it's going to be long, long deals for hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, going back to the all-star games, I heard an interview that John Sterling did one night with Marty Appel, who wrote a book on the history of the Yankees. And he asked Appel, he said, what did you learn from writing this book that you didn't know before? And he said, he never realized that in the all-star game, most of the guys played the whole game. Yeah, well, I didn't realize that either. You know, I, you know, I know, you know, for me as a kid, you know, every team was represented. So it was always exciting for me when one of the Red Sox got in the game. And I'm sure it was for, you know, young kids and fans of other teams when all of a sudden in the sixth or seventh inning, there's your guy out there playing right field or second base, whatever the case might be. So, so I was not aware of that. How do you like doing hockey? I love it. You know, as I said, it was kind of my favorite sport um, as a kid to watch with uh, Bobby Orr and the, those great Bruins teams. Matter of fact, you know, I did the NHL, uh, the Stanley Cup final this past season, as you know. Under 30 seconds to go in regulation. 10 on the power play for New York. Panarin surveying as it blocked by Sorelli. Panarin cross ice for one timer and a goal! Mika Zibanejad with 16 seconds to go! And we had uh, Colorado in the Stanley Cup final, and their best player is the defenseman, Kale McCarr, is a great young player, played at UMass, actually. And there have been some comparisons uh, between Kale McCarr and Bobby Orr. So Phil Esposito was doing the analysis for the Tampa Bay radio broadcast, and between periods of one of the games in Tampa, I ran into him between periods in the hallway, and I said, hey, Phil, I know this is kind of blasphemous, and I feel this way, but uh, there are starting to be comparisons between Kale McCarr and Bob York. And Phil said, don't even start with that. Don't even start. <laughs> you know, like, he didn't even want to hear it. You know, there's only one Bob York. So, you know, when I got, first got to Nesson, you know, we talked earlier about the great opportunity Dan Berkery gave me in 1988 to do the Red Sox games, but I got to Nesson in the fall of 84, and my first major assignment there, uh, as major as it can be when there's only 3,000 subscribers, which when I started at Nesson, they were only in 3,000 homes in all of New England, which is nothing. Um, but I did Hockey East um, for at least one year with Dave Shea, uh, college hockey, and then uh, for several years with Bob Norton. And, you know, so I did hundreds probably of college hockey games. And we had a chance at ESPN to do the NHL when we had it 17 years ago and longer ago than that. So always just love doing hockey. I love the pace of it. You know, the fact that you can kind of do more of a radio style call, you know, Mike Emmerich's considered one of the great hockey broadcasters of all time and deservedly so, but you know, he was very descriptive on TV, which, you know, sometimes people criticize, but in his case, it really didn't get criticized because you kind of need to do it. The puck moves fast. It's, it can be hard to identify who has the puck. So you need to do that as the broadcaster, even on TV. So um, I love doing it. It was uh, a little bit of a hard transition back in after 17 years just because the game has changed a lot. It's much faster than it used to be. Uh, you really don't have to time to look down for a name or a number or stats or you know a biographical tidbit. You better have it in your head or you better do it between whistles because uh, – or, you know, during stoppages in play because you just can't do it in live action. So 
took me a little while to adjust back to it and, and kind of re-familiarize myself with the league. I had followed it as a fan, but it's a, a big difference when you're actually broadcasting these games. And so much easier here at the start of the second season, just in terms of the familiarity. We had our opening game not long ago. It was the Rangers in Tampa Bay, and we had done a bunch of games with both of those teams last year, including the Eastern Conference Finals. So, you know, my familiarity level was so much higher than it was, you know, the opener the year before when it was Tampa Bay and Pittsburgh, and I did my best to learn what I could, but I knew nowhere near as much as I know now. I was surprised and glad that you mentioned Dave Shea. I used to work with him at WEI when I was there, and he also did the uh, Washington Nationals their first year in existence. Right. So I'm glad to hear you mention his name. Yeah, Dave's a terrific broadcaster and a very nice guy, and it was really fun uh, to work with him. Again, you know, that he's one of those guys that, you know, I was right out of Syracuse, basically, when we worked together. and But I had listened to him a lot on, on uh, sports radio and was more than familiar with who he is and his credentials. And, you know, had a great voice, as you know, that kind of Yeah, deep. oh, yeah. And uh, just a nice guy. You know, I've, I've been really, really blessed. I've worked with hundreds of people. Uh, on the air as analysts or you know sideline reporters or whatever and uh, the vast 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 majority of them are were wonderful people to be around and Dave was certainly that you surprised at Tom Brady's on retirement yeah a little bit you know um, I was kind of surprised he retired just knowing how much he loves playing um, but I figured he decided it was the right time and I think he was probably frustrated that Tampa Bay got he had such a good year, but and he played so well, but you know didn't win the Super Bowl again. So, um, but he may regret it now. I mean, they, they're they're not playing very well, and uh, you know there are reports about his personal life, and I don't know uh, if his returning. You know, it's been written and said that his going back to playing after retiring might have been what has caused some of the strain. So, uh, he's a really good guy. Had a chance to spend some time around him and. Uh, really appreciate him. Got to know his dad pretty well. Played golf with his dad a few times over the years. And, you know, they're a wonderful family. But um, I was surprised he retired. And then I was kind of surprised when he unretired. And now I'm wondering if he regrets <laughs> that he unretired with the, the way that it's going on and off the field. So, um, you know, he's, he's the greatest football player of all time. But uh, all of us have a little angst in our lives every now and then. And that doesn't exclude him or anybody else. Bruce Cassidy, should he have been let go? You know, when it first happened, I was adamant, absolutely not, thought it was absolutely a, almost a joke. And then, I mean, with the results, you know, the, to make the playoffs six years in a row, to come really close to winning the Stanley Cup. Uh, with a team that's a good team, it has some outstanding players, but we did several Bruins games last year. You know, it wasn't a team without flaws either, and I just thought, I think coaching is kind of getting the most out of what you have. And I thought for the most part, he did that. And I know the Bruins brain trust thought that they should have been a, a more prolific team offensively, but you know, in my judgment, that was hard with uh, what they had on the third and fourth lines. You know, they, they really didn't have guys who could give them that much on the third and fourth line. So, um, you know, but in hearing the follow-up and talking to some other people, you know, it sounded like his style, you know, he was pretty direct and, sometimes rough with the players and that some of them had maybe had enough to the point where, you know, I don't think it's coincidental that David Krejci left for a year and then came back when Bruce Cassidy was gone. 
you know, there was speculation at the end of the year that Patrice Bergeron might retire. You know, Cassidy left. Here comes Bergeron back. You know, I'm not saying for sure that I think those things are related, but I think there's a very good chance that they are. So, you know, sometimes a fresh start is good for everybody. And I think Bruce, who I really like personally, um, and think he's a good guy, regardless if he was too rough on the players or not. I think he got the best of the open jobs. You know, I think Vegas has a lot of talent. You know, last year was the first time they had missed the playoffs in their five-year history, and they didn't miss by much, and they had a lot of stuff going on last year. So I think if they get good goaltending, uh, you know, they'll they'll be a playoff team again this year. So I think it, he stepped into a good situation, and, you know, we'll see how it goes for the Bruins. And how do you feel about the coaching situation with the Boston Celtics? That's, that's certainly well, an yeah, interesting development. Mess. Obviously, it was a big surprise uh, to have that happen. And, um, yeah, I've known Joe Missoula since he played college basketball, which wasn't even that long ago because I think he's only 34 years old. Uh, but I always liked him, thought he was a good guy. You know, I, I've read a lot about uh, what the people around him have said about him. They have faith in him. But, you know, it's really a shame. Um, you know, first of all, I don't know that any of us really know all the details of what happened. Um, but, you know, there, there was an awful lot of angst for a lot of people uh, in their personal lives you know, especially uh, the women who are being uh, mentioned as possibly having been involved in this when they weren't. Um, You know, I think that was a disgrace. And it's part of what we talked about, about, you know, the negatives of social media and the rush for people to get information out there, even if it's not accurate. Um, But, uh, and it's also a shame from the basketball standpoint, because obviously uh, he made a great job coaching that team last year. You know, it kind of established himself as the up and coming hot coach. And then, you know, to have this happen, you know, it's a, it's a really tough thing for the Celtics who are sitting there with a good team, you know, hoping to contend again. But I, I think in Joe Missoula, they're doing uh, the best they can. They still have a lot of good players. I think they have good people around him, including Brad Stevens, that can offer him counsel if and when he needs it. So I hope it works out, but uh, obviously not a great chapter. Probably a question I should have asked you earlier when we were talking about broadcasting and the Red Sox. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot by asking, but I can't resist. Do you have any idea why the change was made from Don Arcillo to Dave O'Brien, whom I like both and have met and know both? In fact, I was on a cruise with Don Arcillo, as a matter of fact. And he worked so well with Remy. And I know the last game that he broadcast for the Red Sox, the ball players all held up their hats to the booth in, in a salute were ratings bad or, or did they just feel it was time for a change? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I've never really inquired. I do know that I could relate to it. You know, you and I talked about this at the beginning of this conversation. You know, I've been there for 17 years, you know, thought like uh, the viewers appreciated me, at least most of them did, you know, worked really well with Jerry Remy and out of the blue, I was told that I wasn't coming back. So you know, when that happened, I immediately reached out to Don and I said, hey, uh, you know, I'm sorry to hear about this. And if anybody can relate to this, it's me because I went through pretty much the exact same thing, yeah. uh, thinking I was going to be here forever. And, you know, forever turned out to be uh, not very long. Um, so, you know, I don't know the answer to it. I just I think uh, the part of it that bothers me is I think Dave O'Brien is a great broadcaster. And it's not his fault that 
you know, the Red Sox and Nesson, however they made the decision, decided to replace Don Orsillo. And, you know, Dave does an excellent job. Now, some people prefer Don Orsillo. Some people prefer Dave O'Brien. You know, it's the nature of this business. It's not, it's subjective. You know, there's no scoreboard. It's just all personal preference. So, you know, uh, but I feel bad for Dave because, you know, he's, he was taking criticism when, you know, well, you know, it's, it's not his fault that Don Orsillo is not here. So I, it's a long answer to your question. I don't know the reasons. I do think uh, the, uh, the number one reason is that they believed that uh, Dave O'Brien was a better broadcaster than Don Orsillo. And again, they're entitled to that opinion. I mean, Dave had worked for John Henry way back to the Florida Marlin days, I believe. So, yep, you know, he yep. was very familiar with him. And I just think they, they felt like uh, he was the better broadcaster. People can disagree he is also- with that opinion. But I think Dave O'Brien's one of the great broadcasters in America and not just on baseball. I mean, he does football, he does basketball for ESPN, and he does it all exceedingly well. And he's a great guy. So people should yep. play. <laughs> I'll go I think on that's with that. died down. You know, I, I, I do think that some of that's died down. There's some people who are never going to get over it. You know, there's <laughs> some people when it comes back up, they say, well, Don Orsillo never should have had that job because they never should have gotten rid of Sean McDonough. So, you know, I can relate to that part of it too. Well, I got to tell you, I've been listening to Dave because he's been doing the, uh, the some of the playoffs on ESPN radio, and it was so good to hear him doing radio again. I just was glued to it. So Yeah, he's does. great on the radio. He is great. He's great on TV, too. He's, he's a great broadcaster. So, yep. um, yeah, but I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad he got that opportunity on national radio because uh, doing the playoff games was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Just out of curiosity, do you ever get any time off? <laughs> That's another great question. You know, it's funny because I'm as we're speaking here, I'm trying to work out a new uh, contract with ESPN, and it's one of the things that you know goes into the conversation. Well, how many events do you do, and what events do you do, and what might you be willing to give up, or does it get to the point where, unfortunately, I stop doing the Red Sox games on the radio in the summer because. You know, when I added the, the NHL, you know, the entire month of May and June is taken up by the playoffs. I mean, I got COVID at the beginning of May, but if I hadn't, you know, I, I so I really I did some playoff games, but then I got COVID. So I had to come out for about 10 days. But then I went back in mid-May and I think I slept in my own bed one night between May 15th and June 26th or 7th, whenever the playoffs ended. So it is an unbelievable grind. You know, you're. You're doing a game, you're traveling to the next game, you're doing that game, you're preparing, you're traveling. I mean, you don't even, you don't have enough energy when you get to some of these cities to go to dinner with friends who live there, or go play golf, or, you know, it was, uh, I made myself work out, but uh, it's really a grind. So, you know, when I got done with that, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, now I have, you know, 35 Red Sox games that I'm committed to do. <laughs> and now they're jammed into uh, July and August because I wasn't able to do any in May and June because the playoffs take up every day. So, yeah, it's it's a question that I'm dealing with, Ken, right now is, uh, you know, is it time to scale back a little bit just because it would be nice to have a little more balance in life rather than just working all the time. Well, I got to tell you, if that happens, you're going to be missed. And I, I want, also want to thank you for sitting down and answering what might have been some tough questions. They didn't mean to be, but <laughs> That's having okay. been in broad- well, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I'm a great admirer. And, you know, I, I do a lot of these uh, 
interviews on podcasts and talk shows. And I'm not surprised that uh, your questions were astute and demonstrated your knowledge. And, you know, the, you did a great job with this. And uh, I always enjoy any opportunity to speak with you. How were you affected by COVID, by the way? What happened to you during that? Uh, my symptoms were basically, you know, we started the playoffs. And at the beginning, I thought, well, I'm just tired from, you know, we were doing a game, we're getting up the next morning super early, flying to someplace else and doing a game that night and then getting up the next morning, flying back to the previous series to do the game too. And then, so after a few days of that, I was just, I felt really tired. And then, uh, and then, yeah, I thought this isn't just, I'm used to traveling a lot and working a lot. So, you know, was, I just had that incredible fatigue more than anything. I had a lot of head congestion, um, but it was more just, I have to go to bed and I have to sleep. You know, there was a Sunday where I slept 21 hours out of the 24, <laughs> you know, felt like wow. I was back in college, <laughs> but, 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 you know, during... you just want to sleep all the time. But uh, yeah, I just had incredible fatigue and that lasted uh, probably for four or five days, but then but it during... took me nine days before I could test negative, even though I felt better And ESPN at that time, they, you know, they weren't allowing you to come back until you tested uh, negative, even though I think the CDC was saying then that after five days, you were pretty much not going to be a threat to somebody else. So it was frustrating. I mean, the Bruins played Carolina in game seven of the playoff series. I would have been doing that game. My friends texting me, where are you? I thought you were the lead play-by-play guy. The Bruins are playing game seven. And someone else is on there. Steve <laughs> Lee does a fantastic job, but uh so that was really frustrating, you know, to have waited all those years to have a chance to do the Stanley Cup playoffs. And now they're going on and I'm flat on my back in Quincy. But uh, but, you know, we got healthy enough to bounce back in. And actually, with hindsight, I was probably better off that I had missed a little bit at the beginning, because, uh, as I said earlier, once I got back in, it's a it's that it's a long month and a half or two months. And I don't know how the players do it. I mean, they're out there playing every other night. You know, knocking themselves uh, into each other at very high speeds. And they, most of those guys are playing with pretty significant, uh, you know, some of them are playing with torn ACLs and broken, you know, dislocated yeah. shoulders and broken yep. hands, all kinds of things. So those, those hockey players are super tough. But, but during 2020 itself, like when there were no fans in the stands, which seemed kind of weird, I don't, I don't even know if they should have had a baseball season. How did that affect you, if anything, anyway? Yeah, it was it was weird, and it wasn't as fun. You know, I mean, I did a couple of football games where, you know, the people who were sitting below the box in the stands were looking up at us. You know, there was maybe sometimes some of these schools allowed parents or they allowed a small number of fans at some point, and, you know, or even the people on the sideline could hear you. You could hear the people on the sideline yelling at each other. You could hear the coaches yelling at the refs, which we never heard. You know, when there were fans in the stands, uh, we had a Clemson game a couple of weeks ago against Wake Forest. And I mentioned to Dabo Sweeney, the Clemson coach, and Dave Kloss, the Wake Forest coach, that the last time we did that matchup was the first year of COVID when they played with no fans. And it was our opening game of the season. And I'll never forget, about an hour and a half before the game, Dabo and Dave with some other administrators and the officials went out to the middle of the field and they all stood there and they played fake crowd noise out of the PA system and they all had to agree on what was the proper decibel level how loud was too loud or not loud enough for the fake crowd noise so 
you know, a big part of these events, these big events, you know, a big part of the Stanley Cup final is the crowd. You know, watching those Stanley Cup final games when they were in a bubble, that wasn't the Stanley Cup playoffs. You know, they crowned a champion. It's great. But I remember, you know, when the Bruins played St. Louis in the Stanley Cup final in 19, sitting in the stands at game seven, I mean, that was electric. I've been to a million sporting events in my life, and that was as intense as anything. And uh, it's a big part of what makes events like that special. College football, you know, the crowds are a huge part of it. So it, it wasn't that much fun. It was definitely less fun than the uh, the normal way, and I'm glad that the fans are back. Well, <laughs> you know, the one thing I'll always remember, too, is channel uh, uh, the Nesson people show old Red Sox broadcasts, and they showed Jerry Remy's first one. And somebody said one of the interesting things what, that was missing was there was no walk-up music. <laughs> you never oh, really, really thought of that. Yeah. You know, it's amazing yeah. how things change over the years that, you know, we forget weren't around yep. forever, but weren't always a part of it. And uh, well, that's, um, I'm sure it was interesting to watch Jerry's game. You know, Jerry, by his own admission, wasn't very good at the beginning, you know, to the yeah. point where, uh, to the point where Phoebe, his wife, told the story about at the end of the first year, he wanted to quit because he, yeah. he didn't think he was very good. And she talked him into uh, giving it another shot. I, I made a joke when I spoke at his memorial thing at, uh, at Fenway Park, the a ceremony uh earlier this year that you know she only said that because she just didn't want him around the house but uh (laughs) but it's a good thing she kind of pushed him back into it because you know obviously he became a legendary much loved broadcaster and was one of the great joys of my professional life was having and personal life being his friend but you know it was a great honor to work with him for nine years yeah the forward that you wrote to his book was one of the most interesting interesting forwards i've ever read in my life Oh, well, thank you. I put a lot of time into that. You know, you, uh, I was very honored when Jerry and the late great Nick Cafardo asked me to do that. And you don't want to just, you know, kind of do it half-heartedly. And, um, you know, they were nice enough to kind of give me the time to, to do it right. And, uh, I know Jerry appreciated it and Nick appreciated it. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's hard, Ken. I, I still miss Jerry. And we had a few times this year on the radio where we talked about Jerry and I got all choked up. And, yeah. you know, it's uh, just weird being at Fenway Park and not seeing him there. You know, he was there forever. So uh, we miss him. You know, it, Red Sox on TV, it's not the same. And it's going to be uh, even stranger uh, without Dennis Eckersley next year. So I don't envy <laughs> yeah. the people who step yeah. in because, you know, they have, uh, I think, impossible shoes to fill. I hope. Hope Nesson finds some great people to step in there because I think that's what Red Sox Nation is used to. Well, again, I have to thank you for sitting down and doing this. As far as shoes to fill, I don't think anybody can ever fill yours. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. You are good at what you do. And you, like Dave O'Brien and Joe, are real gentlemen. And uh, I just can't thank you enough for doing this. Well, I'm honored that you asked me. It was a real pleasure to run into you a few weeks ago. And uh, I hope you can do it again sometime. Oh, we will. With the way sports happen in Boston, we'll do it again. All right. All right. <laughs> well, Sean, you thank well, you so my much. Take good care of yourself. And thanks I for will having do me that with you. Anytime. You and that will can. do it. That will do it for this edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email 
The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.